Hi, I'm Julie Ross. And I'm Gregory Abbey. And you're listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. Julie is a longtime parent educator and counselor. And Greg is an actor, writer, and director, and more importantly, a parent just like you. Through conversations covering a range of different topics, challenges, and roadblocks, we hope to give you a few of Julie's tools that might just help make parenting a little bit easier. Look, nobody's perfect, and parenting is challenging, to say the least. With a few skills under our belts, though, we might just be able to be good enough parents and enjoy the journey and our children a little bit more in the process. So, all right. Um... This is kind of uh, the, the, a monumentous day for our our little Parenting Horizons podcast because we have a first ever guest for our podcast. So it's myself and Julie. And Julie, do you want to do the honor of introducing our guest? Sure. Our guest um, today is Emily Vogus. And Emily is a specialist in autism and other neurodivergent uh, kiddos. And Emily, I think I should really let you introduce yourself. You have your own company, right? Yes, I do. Um, So I'm based out of Central Texas, but I have a small private practice called Real Life ABA. And we primarily work with neurodivergent kids and their parents. A lot of what we do is educating parents and getting that buy-in because... Can I ask you, so I already have a question. When you say neurodivergent, what, what does that mean? Yeah, so neurodivergent is a broad term that really looks at... The, or, or refers to kids who fall outside of the middle average 50%. And that's mm-hmm. not to say that the middle 50% is average in general. But what we're talking about is often kids with diagnoses, autism, Down syndrome, there's some neurodivergency that happens in cerebral palsy and, and diagnoses like that. But these are kids who typically fall outside of that bell curve 50%. What, 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 you, what we might consider, you know, quote unquote, normal. Yes. And, and what we usually refer to as neurotypical. Think, yes. And do you specialize in something specific then at, at your practice? Or do you see kids across the spectrum? I, I see kids in spectrum usually refers to, <laughs> yes. in, in my line of work, does refer to the autism spectrum. Uh, <laughs> right, right. And so yes, usually that I have my master's in autism and developmental disabilities. So I primarily focus on kids on the autism spectrum, but I see kids with Down syndrome. Uh, I see kids with sensory processing issues. I see kids Hmm. with obsessive compulsive disorder. So I I see a a fairly broad range of individuals in my practice, but my specialty, I guess, would be um, autism and and the autism spectrum. And has that gotten... I don't have a child with autism. I don't know any of my friends don't have children. So I guess my question would be, has it gotten more, like the diagnosis has gotten more specific? Because it seems autism seems kind of broad, right? In terms of saying that a kid has autism. And as we've gotten more, you know, sort of knowledge and research, we've been able to diagnose kids more specifically, I would think. But I guess the point is, is autism a word that can cover a wide range of diagnoses? Like, do, does CP, does OCD, is that considered like a, a mild form of autism? Are you on the spectrum or no? I mean, in my opinion, everybody is kind of somewhere on the spectrum, right? So, right, we, right, right. The spectrum really has a lot of a, a very wide range of attributes and and what some people call severities. So you know, we have kids who pass, for lack of a better word, as neurotypical. You would really never know other than the fact that Mm. somewhere in their charts, they have an autism diagnosis. And then we have kids who really need a a pretty significant amount of assistance to live out their daily lives. They really have had to be taught how to engage in self-care, you know, brushing teeth and showering and and toileting and all of that has has required some more significant intervention to Mm. have them acquire those skills. So you have this huge, huge broad range. Um, And we all have, when I say that we all have, you know, that everybody's kind of on the spectrum, what I mean by that is that we all have bits and pieces 
that sure. kind of fit into that that spectrum, we would never qualify mm-hmm. for a diagnosis because yeah, you do have to right, have right. a specific set of you have to meet a certain set of criteria to well, you know, to to have the diagnosis of autism. But we all have little bits and pieces that kind of fall into that spectrum somewhere, which I think allows those of us who are quote unquote neurotypical to kind of have a better understanding of what these kids go through because right we have those qualities in ourselves my question would be we can talk about if you have a child that falls under that category and we can talk about some strategies with dealing with that child but my question would be what do you do if you're a parent and you know, what are some of those qualities, uh, criteria that you might start to see in your own child? Like what tips off a parent? I mean, I guess sometimes it can be obvious, like if the child isn't verbal or, or there's something really specific, like how do parents come to you? What do parents do in that moment when they're like, something seems is not, you know, typical? What does a parent do? I was just going to say that I think that what happens often is that Julie may see people who have small, you know, parents who have very small children, and something's not right. And they actually may see Julie before they would see me, because I'm not a diagnostician. So Mm. I usually see kiddos after the fact, after they've been diagnosed. I mean, what I tell all Mm. of my parents and friends and colleagues and all that stuff, is that if, if somebody has a suspicion that something feels off, they should absolutely always be referred. I mean, they should always go to the, their pediatrician and say, you know, something doesn't sit right here. Something is going on. And, and I think we need, a, you know, further evaluation. And and Julie, because, is that, because is that, I'm sorry, Julie, and, that, and is that what you would do? Like if a, in your group or if you're in individual counseling with someone and they're bringing this up to you, is that what you do? Do you refer to a pediatrician first for that pediatrician then to steer them towards an expert? Yeah, that's exactly what I do. And what I look for when when a parent is talking to me, I'm not a diagnostician either, but if I hear a parent describing behaviors that are off of the developmental norm, you know, what I would say, you know, what a typically developing child is. So maybe they're walking late, Mm. maybe they're, you know, maybe they're doing what we call a W sit. Um, which means that, that, yeah, right. Well, it would kill our knees to do it, but it's, it's sitting on your bottom with your thighs together, but your, the bottoms of your legs out to the sides Mm. and, and back. So it looks like a W Hmm. and typically that's a symptom of having a weak core. Hmm. I've seen kids you know, or I've heard about kids from my the parents that I work with who can't really st- stand up for very long. They fall down. Kids who engage in what we call stimming behaviors. So they might repeatedly hit themselves in the head. They might flap their hands in front of their eyes. They might, they might, tap their feet. I mean, Emily can describe these even better. But what I look for, and when I refer a parent out, and also language delays, is when when I see a parent who has a 18-month-old, a 24-month-old, the point is, and I think what Emily, a point that Emily was making is that if you suspect that your child isn't developing upon along typical lines, whether... Right. You come to somebody like me because, you know, you're having more challenges than, you know, your your peers raising your kid or whether you or whether your pediatrician notices at first. Early intervention is really important. And why early is early intervention is super key. But but Emily, why? Why is that? Why is it? I mean, I, I, I maybe it's obvious, but but why? Why get in there just so you can start sort of dealing with that behavior early on and start of getting the getting them the help they need i guess yeah i mean when when we look at earlier intervention and there's been a bunch of studies about this what happens in early intervention is that all of those maladaptive behaviors behaviors that are not socially acceptable are very quick to become intrinsic to anybody but particularly small children they they are sponges they're soaking up a lot of stuff and so if they do a behavior over and over again for a little bit of time that becomes a habit and that's exactly how they kind of want to stay and then you have that kind of inertia issue that they 
they're like, this is my pattern and I really like it. And I'm really and it's not comforting too. Yeah. Right. And right. so if you have early intervention, you can kind of get in before those patterns and routines get hyper established and you can start to, to help those kids develop behaviors that are going to be socially acceptable and socially function, you know, in, in the wider world. Um, as and can you, can you mention what you, you, you said to me before sort of off mic when we were talking, how did you describe those behaviors that y you say that we all have a little flavor of it, whether it's the clicking of the pen or the twirling of the hair? How did you define that? What did you call it? Right. So what Julie referred to as stimming is referenced is, is the, the official name for it in the industry is stereotypy. Uh, so that is mm. the really classic one that, that kind of gets portrayed a lot in media is the flapping of the hands in front of the face. And, and that's sensory input that they're kind of seeking out. So that's not seen as socially acceptable. What mm. we see a lot in the neurotypical population is also stereotypy, but it's just more socially acceptable than the hand flapping. So you'll see people click pens, you'll see people twirl hair, You'll see people hmm. fidget with necklaces or jewelry. That all is 100% under the umbrella of stereotypy, but it's socially acceptable. So often what we're doing when I work with a kid is trying to find those stereotypies that they're already engaging in and find something that's more socially acceptable, simply because it's going to make their lives easier and make it more hmm. plausible for them to be able to go out and interact with people without ridicule or any of the myriad right. number of things that can happen. So stereotypy is one well, of those categories that everybody engages in. I mean, I don't right, know very right. many people right. who don't. So, I mean, you know, Emily used the example of, you know, hand flapping in front of eyes. I think there's a movement, and I th think we should probably just address this right up front. There's a movement in the autistic community that would say that, some of those behaviors like hand flapping are socially acceptable. It's just that the parents don't like them and they want the child to change. So yeah. I think, you know, that's arguable, right? But I think what, you know, what I, one of the reasons that I am an advocate for children on the spectrum who have a lot of these stimming behaviors, I'm an advocate for therapy for them, because some of them are not neutral behaviors. Some of them involve self-harm. Some of them mm. involve banging their heads on the floor. Some right. of them involve playing with their own feces. And that all may feel good to them. You know, it may serve that purpose. And Emily, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But I think that Obviously, those are behaviors that are not only not socially acceptable, but that are harmful to their surroundings or harmful to right. themselves. Would that be accurate, Emily? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, we primarily what we the, the behaviors that I'm working with often are those behaviors that are detrimental to themselves or others um, and in really significant ways. I have kids who bang their heads against walls, who scratch themselves, um, and it, and it right. is heartbreaking when that happens and ha for both the kid and the parents. It's it's just a really hard situation. Right, so, yeah. so I want to, we should talk about like what you want to do in those situations, but I guess as I'm listening to both of you talk, it seems like there's a social emotional component to this in the sense that how do you determine... If the behavior, you know, what is considered unacceptable, and I think, Julie, you just sort of touched on that in terms of how do we change the narrative and, and does it become about, for you, Emily, maybe in your practice does, you know, is the child bothered by it? I mean, obviously, if there's like self-harm going on and he's totally disruptive, it's one thing, but do you find it can be a fine line between, you know, if someone's flapping their hands in front of their face, I mean, is that... If it doesn't cause them discomfort, if it's actually a self-soothing thing, how do you determine like, oh, we need to, to, you know, we need to change this behavior? Like if it's coming from the parents or the school, like, do you run into that situation too? Where is the line? Because obviously there's real extreme that that's obvious, like, okay, we have to deal with this. Do you run into that? Yeah. I mean, we run into it a, a tremendous amount. I have so many times I run into parents, particularly when 
kid with the diagnosis is the older of, uh, you know, several children or they're only where they go, you know, oh, I want to get rid of that behavior. And I'm like, okay, so Mm. we really need to look at what developmentally is appropriate here because, you know, the kid gets excited and shrieks. I'm not, I'm not so down with, that's not a behavior that I'm, I'm going to be concerned about because, you know, I get excited. I get loud. I get, that's, (laughs) that, that, I'm not, that's just not something that I'm willing to work with. And in, in some of those cases, then I refer out, but what we have to look at is, you know, it's so hard. You have to look at the physical well-being. Yeah. So all of the head banging, all that stuff is really, really challenging. What I find is that often I have kids who are a little bit older who, if they have engaged in hand flapping, which is not, is not harmful to anybody, if it feels good, that, you know, that's Mm -hmm. something that can absolutely be left in place. We do start to run into teasing and bullying at the school age. And so then we have to walk that fine line of, okay, well, and some oftentimes I can go to the kid and kind of go, okay, this is, there, there's some choices here. If you want to continue to do this and this feels good, then absolutely go for it. And like, let's try to figure out some way to figure out the bullying situation because kids are mean sometimes. Well, then are you are you coordinating care almost with the school? Like I would, I would imagine then it becomes a thing where, so let's say a situation, it's hand flapping or it's sort of specific behavior that he's getting teased about. Gosh, this seems so complicated to me because I imagine it depends on the individual that if the child is able to articulate like this bothers me. I'm getting teased. Can you help me change this? Then and you are you saying to the parents like, hey, he's getting bullied every day at school. We need to bring a counselor in and and make them aware that this situation is happening. Is that part of your process as well? Yeah. So so when it when a kid is able to kind of articulate that, and even when the kid is not able to articulate that, we really do try to work as a team. So we bring in mm-hmm. school, we bring in other therapists, speech therapists. Uh, physical therapist, occupational therapist, and it really is a team effort. We're all trying to help the child ultimately, um, and unfortunately, sometimes that can it gets a little bit adversarial, um, particularly yeah, of course, with depending on points of view. And yeah, stuff. and that can be really, really challenging in its own right. But when there's a bullying situation, yeah, we definitely do talk to the teacher, and often, sometimes the teacher will bring it to us and go, look, this is what's happening. And so the the teacher will be more concerned about that kind of stereotypy than we will at home because we're not, it's not a big deal in our, in our realm, but at school, it's really a huge issue. And so we kind of then have to work with the school to try to figure out either a way to educate the kids and Mm -hmm. explain to them what's going on off, you know, knowledge is power in, in a lot of cases. And so educating the kids about how they can interact with the individual in question or the individual with the diagnosis, that kind of is usually the route that we wind up going with for that kind of situation. Emily, maybe you could describe a little bit about how you help kids change that behavior, whether it's a self-harm behavior, right? Um, Because I feel like there's an intersection here between I work with parents and give them the tools to use in the household to change a behavior that's inappropriate. And I think that there's an intersection, I think there's an intersectionality about around kind of this idea that all behavior is communication, right? So maybe thinking about what is this child trying to communicate or how is, why is this child trying to self-soothe in your, you know, in the case of um, neurodivergent kids? And then how do you, how do you kind of steer that into a more appropriate direction? Yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of the time you you were a hundred percent right. (laughs) Behavior is communication. And that's, (laughs) that's what I founded my business on is that ultimately that's what we're looking for is to try to figure out what the individual is trying to communicate and figure out if we can do it in an easier way or do it in a less harmful way in the cases of, of you know, self-injurious behavior or any of that. So a lot of the time we do what, what I call narration. So you're engaging with an, an, a kid and, and I do say kid primarily because that is the age group that I work with. We absolutely have adults with autism and, you know, have colleagues who work with that population. 
but a lot of the time, I mean, that that's just not my specialty. My specialty is really the early intervention through middle school age kids. Hmm. I guess that my question would be then, and then how does it manifest in terms of what you're doing with the child? So let's say a child has a behavior that's going on in school that you need to change. And I imagine, so there's practical things that you teach, but also are you doing the, the emotional component as well in terms of their emotional struggle? Yeah. So I, I do. I think that there is kind of a push in the industry to, to do more of that. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. old school thinking that is kind of slowly, hopefully being phased out in terms of not paying attention to that emotional component um, and kind of ignoring it because it's not mm. pure behavior. But we all know that there's, there's a, a really strong tie between emotional well-being and behavioral well-being. And so denying right. that component of it is not ultimately going to solve anything because if you just completely ignore it, it there's no working through it. So... No, I was just going to say, so if, if someone, like if the behavior says, let's say it's them flapping their hands, right? And they want to they try to change that or end it. Like, how do you deal with something like that? So often what we do is kind of narrate the situation. So we try to figure out why that's happening. Now, sometimes it just happens because it feels good. And so in that case, we kind of, I will often talk about it with the kid. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so I want you to be aware of what your body is doing right now. And I see that you're flapping. What can we what can we think of that might be something that you could do instead with your body that would make it feel good and avoid the interactions that you've been having at school or avoid being teased or or however you're going to communicate that situation to the child. In other cases, it is anxiety, and it's pretty clear that that's what's going on. And we can kind of intervene and and see. Do they start to do it when I've asked them to do their homework? Or do they start to do it when I've asked them to go perform a chore, you know, putting away dishes or um, taking out the trash or any of those situations? That would give me, start to give me a clue that it's because they're anxious or they don't want to do something. Or are they doing it when I'm on talking to mom or dad and all of a sudden in the background they crop up and do it? Maybe they want my attention. So I would kind of try to figure out where it happens the most. The trigger is. Yeah, what that trigger is and then work through it with them. So I see you're feeling really anxious that I've asked you to do your homework. Can we think of something that might work to alleviate that anxiety and still get your homework done? stuff sometimes just still has to get done. Um, I'm anxious sometimes when I have to go run errands or talk on the phone and it still has to get done. So I have to figure out coping mechanisms that I can um, put in place for myself to make that anxiety less so that I can do those tasks. So that's what I'm strategizing with the child about, you know, what, what can we think of that might be able, that we might be able to do or um, we might be able to change that can help you feel less anxious in this situation. Or in the case of, you know, the kid, I'm talking to mom and dad, and the kid goes off and and, and engages in whatever behavior they're going to be engage in, I see you want my attention. Let me finish with mom or, you know, give me one minute and then I can, then I'll come back to you and, and you can have all my attention for X number of minutes. So that I'm communicating with them pretty much constantly and giving that information back to them rather than just kind of keeping them in the dark. And that allows them to change those behaviors over time because they either know what's coming up or they know that they have an alternative behavior to engage in to, to make themselves feel better or alleviate whatever is kind of driving that behavior in the first place. And are you dealing then mostly with kids that have behaviors, but they're in like a public school? Right. So they they have the ability because it sounds like as, as I'm listening to you, these are kids that have these behaviors, but have the capacity to articulate their thoughts and feelings. So maybe their intelligence is on level, but they have these behaviors that they're having to deal with. Is that a lot of who you're dealing with as, as opposed to someone that where it's so severe, they might not even be able to go to a public school? 
So I work, you know, my kids run the gamut um, from kids who really can't articulate, you know, yes, I'm feeling nervous. Yes, I'm feeling worried. Yes, I'm feeling sad to my kiddos who really don't have the language and may never have the language to identify it with words, <laughs> what what they're feeling. Hmm. But that doesn't mean that they don't identify those feelings without words. Right. You know, words words are 20, no. Eight percent of seven percent of seven percent. Oh, I was so close. Seven 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 percent. Seven. They are seven percent of communication. So you can tell a lot by interacting with a a kid and you know looking at their body language. Even if they don't talk, you know, use words, they may verbalize in other ways that give you that information as to how they're feeling, what what's going on with them. And you can kind of probe those, you know, if I've given them, a, you know, something that they need to get done, if I've told them that they need to go brush their teeth, or they need to pick up the toys on the way up the stairs so that everybody doesn't fall over them, and that's where the behavior occurs, then that gives me a clue as to what what they're trying to communicate. They don't really want to do those tasks, which I get. Or, you know, again, parent interaction is often a really good one, that, that attention, that they want my attention versus my attention being on mom or dad. Um, but just because they're not verbal doesn't mean that they can't communicate those those emotions to me and, and that you know emotional well-being yeah they do communicate with and i think we've said this on on the podcast before greg but words are seven percent of communication body language is 55 percent of communication tone of voice is 38 so if you've got a child who is nonverbal in terms of words and they are behaving in a certain way and screeching, you've still got, what, 93% of the communication going on because you can watch their body and hear their tone. And even if they're just behaving, I think it's important for parents of both neurodivergent and neurotypical kids to, to understand that they're always communicating, always, always, always from birth they communicate with us, you know, when of course they don't have words. So, you know, part of what I do, and I think what Emily also does in, Emily does it between therapist and kid, but also educates the parents and correct me if I'm wrong, Emily, but we try to help parents decode their children's behaviors and interpret the behaviors and then validate the feeling that is underlying the behavior so that the child learns to behave inappropriate ways to talk about or to convey what their feelings are. Would, would you say that's accurate, Emily, in the neurodivergent field as well? Yeah, I would. And I think that, you know, not necessarily, and we talk about behavior and, and replacement behaviors. What we're, tr- what we're attempting to do is to give them either the vocabulary or the ability to sh- kind of show you in some way what's going on internally. Um, so that may not be words, like we said, but it may be either sign or, you know, they know that if they're feeling overwhelmed, they can go to a safe place, you know, a safe corner or a quiet corner and have that time away from everybody to calm them, their bodies back down to make to kind of recenter whatever, whatever they need to do. But we're teaching that kind of interaction. If they feel overwhelmed, if they feel upset, they can remove their bodies from the situation rather than insisting that they in, you know, continue to engage in a situation that they're not okay with. So as I'm listening to, it sounds like to me, so you have to pinpoint maybe what the behaviors are that are, I guess, detrimental. Then you're you're helping the child. You're giving them strategies then? Is that is that what you would say? You're giving them strategies on working with the child on how to deal when those moments come up? Is that, is that the idea? Yeah. So usually, you know, I stop the situation in, in the moment. I say, oh, it looks like you're feeling X. Let's do Y, right? So I see that you're feeling really angry that your sister grabbed the toy. Let's tell her that you you would like a turn or, or tell her that it's still your turn. Or I see that you're feeling really sad right now because you fell down. Let's come get a hug. Or let's come get, you know, let's come show mom the ouchie. Right, uh, so right. that So that you're always replacing, you're giving that opportunity to replace the behavior that you might see and you might, 
you know, be concerning in, in whatever way with a behavior that is functional. But I imagine it, depending on the age of the child, it sounds like you're potentially giving those strategies to the parent, right? I mean, like if the child is 15 and you're saying, okay, hey, right, I would imagine you're working with them individually more like, okay, when this comes up, you're dealing with this because the things you just described, it sounded like you were almost a parent talking to your child. So if you if you pinpoint like, is that how it happens? Like a parent might say, yeah, when I ask him to do his homework, he he hits himself in the head. So you have that knowledge and then you're talking to the child, but then do you go back to the parent and say, hey, this is what, whatever the child's name is, this is what we're working on. This is what I think maybe you could implement in the home to help. Yeah. Is that the idea? Absolutely. Because I'm there, you know, however many hours I'm there a week. You know, some kids I see 10, 15 hours a week. Some kids I see one or two hours a week. Oh, wow. So do you go to their their home or are you in your office? Yeah. Most of the time I, (laughs) pandemic changed all the things. Oh, right. right, Um, (laughs) But yes, I, prior, pre-pandemic, yes, I went into homes um, with the full understanding that I was there a a small, small, small fraction of the time that parents are going to be there or caregivers are going to be there. Right. So I can do all the magnificent, amazing things in the world and I can get the kid to communicate with me. But if they don't then turn around and communicate with the caregiver then I haven't done my job because all oh. of the time that they're with their caregiver and not communicating with their caregiver and creating just a fraught relationship with that caregiver then undoes anything that I could possibly try to, to implement, you know, the couple hours I'm there. So I'm always trying to give the parent the strategy to alleviate the, the behavior mm, and to, to communicate with their kid. You know, that's ultimately what we're, we're working towards is having a parent who's not like, oh, my child is smacking their sister every time something happens to a parent who goes, okay, I see what is happening here. I see the the constituent parts that are coming together to create this behavior. And here's what Mm -hmm. we're going to do about it. And creating an environment where that the parent can really feel safe to kind of slow down and to really examine what's going on. Because I think a lot of the time, particularly with parents of neurodivergent kids, and possibly with all neurotypical kids as well. I don't know. Parents rush headlong into situations and go, I have to fix this right now. And it has to be yesterday and it has to be fixed and it has to be perfect. And And I mean, they've just, and it just can't work that way. And it's not going to work that way. And it creates a a situation in which the child is stressed out and the parent is stressed out and everybody just comes to this, you know, volcano of a situation and it it rarely ends well. So So that sounds like that's a key for parents to hear that this idea, it's kind of you want to play the long Uh game, I guess, like the idea is like, we're going to shift this. It's like moving an iceberg, though. We got to take our time. This is not going to happen overnight. I mean, that's true of any, any behavior. It's difficult to overnight. Right, exactly. And, you know, and, you know, as we've said before on the podcast, and and I will continue to say to my dying breath, unless it's dangerous, underreact. Because, you know, look, if a kid is, you know, has a knife in their hand, that's dangerous. A kid, you know, is about ready to drink a quart of bleach, or even a tablespoon of bleach. That's dangerous, right? You have to act immediately. You know, and if a kid is hitting their sister, I would also say, you know, that's dangerous. You've got to stop the behavior. But if a kid right. is not listening, if a kid is bouncing on the bed, if the kid, you know, in, in a, most situations really don't qualify as dangerous, ro- really don't necessitate that trigger response on the part of the parents. And under reaction, what that gives the parents a chance to do is to kind of think about what's going on, to think like a therapist. You know, I think it's funny that you said that Emily sounded like she was almost a parent talking to her own kid. Well, the the reality is all the skills that I teach parents and all the skills Emily teaches parents are therapeutic skills. I mean, it's the, you know, it's good practices are good practices. It doesn't matter whether they're in a therapy room or whether they're in a house between parent and child. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so it gives parents that underreaction gives parents a chance to do kind of what a therapist would do, which is analyze the behavior, 
Where is it coming from? What is the child likely feeling in this case? How can I get them to express that feeling differently so I can be more supportive or helpful? You know, how can I give them the language that they need or you know, Emily works with, uh, you know, some kids who are, are nonverbal. How can I give them a different behavior that's going to communicate what that feeling is so that, so that the adults can help? Would you say that's accurate, Emily? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And allowing them the opportunity to communicate in an easier way. I mean, that's, I think, as adults... Our job is to facilitate that communication and, and, you know, whether it's a neurotypical kid who doesn't, just doesn't have the language yet, right? Like that, we, Julie talked about infants, they don't have the language. So we have to continue to model that as, as they get older so that they have that, that, you know, cue, clue in language. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling whatever. Mm. So whether it's that kind of a communicative experience or relationship or our kids on the spectrum who don't necessarily or or may not develop that ability, um, but who can, you know, they, they feel angry, they walk away. They feel angry, they take a couple deep breaths. They feel angry, they, you know, whatever that skill is that we've taught them, they don't have the language to, to say, I'm feeling angry, but they do have the ability to know what that feels like in their bodies and, and perform an action that is ultimately going to tell us, oh, they're feeling angry. This is where they're at. But how do you do it with, how do you do it with a child? I mean, Julie just said nonverbal. So if you work with kids that are nonverbal, wow, how does that work that you're able to give them strategies or coping skills? Is it because they're they're able to articulate, well, Julie said, words are only 7%. So they're able to communicate to you in another way, their struggle, like, how do you even figure that out? Yeah, I mean, you're looking at the contextual clues, just like you would in any situation, you're looking at that antecedent, what happens immediately before the behavior. um, And you're looking Mm. at the consequences, what, you know, happens in, in their surroundings immediately after the behavior and combined with that information, and the information that they're giving you in the moment, you can kind of piece together what's going on. Um, it could be variations on a theme, right? You know, sibling steals the toy. What are some feelings that they could feel? They could feel angry. Right, right. They could feel jealous. They could feel disappointed. So, you know, there's a, there's a couple options there. That's true. But the likelihood is that we're going to respond to all of those in a similar-ish, you know, very generic, but sure. similar-ish way. Um, and we can teach that replacement behavior across the board there. So yeah, you're, you're, we're pulling in and, and oftentimes what happens with parents is that they, that's a lot of information to try to, to gather in, a, in the moment that your child <laughs> right, is you right, know, sure. tossing something across the room at their sibling. So right. what we talked about earlier about kind of slowing down and having those yeah. moments to collect and kind of really analyze the situation like a therapist, that's often what I'm teaching parents to do, which is to kind of back up, take a moment, try to get all of the information that they can get. Because, you know, again, Mm. using a sibling as an example, kid blows up and they're right next to their sibling. Maybe sibling hit them. (laughs) You know, there's there's all sorts of situations. So sometimes we're missing those clues. And we, as a society, unfortunately, I think we have instilled in a lot of our parents that it's often the kid, the neurodivergent kid's fault. Um, and that's right, not right, sure. true. <laughs> that's not the way that mm-hmm. this works, right? Every, I mean, we all make mistakes. We, I have, stuff happens across the board regardless of neurodivergency. So sometimes it's the other, you know, the other kid's fault, the adult's fault. I mean, you know, I've had situations where kid is really struggling and I go into the school and find that teacher is flat out ignoring the child or punishing the kid for something that the kid didn't do. You know, the adult is at fault at that point. So right. we have to figure out ways to do that. But often what happens is that the, the blame gets placed on the neurodivergent kid. Right. And then you're sort of stuck in that shame cycle, too, that they're always getting in trouble. I mean, it sounds like you really have to be I mean, a, a, a couple things occur to me. It sounds like you really have to be a detective to sort of like start to piece this together. The other thing I think about is Julie and I talk about a lot and Julie mentions all the time is that that this stuff takes time. 
especially in something as complicated and nuanced as this different from child to child, not only for you, but for the parent and the idea being, you know, when, when Julie talks about the techniques on the on the episodes we do, I always say like, this is not a magic panacea. You're not going to get it right the first time. So it seems like in this case, that's even more true, would you say? Yeah, it absolutely takes practice. I mean, there's it, it it's not going to happen overnight. I've been doing this for a decade, um, over a decade, and I it's fairly second nature, but it wasn't when I started. <laughs> and sure. and I think that when you add in the fact that like parents, I mean, I have a one and a half year old. When he does stuff, all of those techniques that I have, you know, down pat <laughs> and are fantastic. I mean, and and as far as we know right now, he's neurodivergent. I mean, neurotypical. Right. But all of those fantastic techniques that I have really <laughs> honed over the last decade go flying out the window. <laughs> and it's really, really hard to to go, okay, no, wait, I have to step back. What is he trying to communicate? Right. You know, he he runs into the room and goes, ah! And I'm like, what do you want, kid? What is going on? <laughs> well, you know, I was talking to grandparents. So yeah, that's frustrating. And he doesn't have the language to say, mom, I want your attention, please. He's one and a half. Right. So, you know, it's, it's really, you know, I, I try to remind my parents that I work with, it's really easy for me to come in and say, you know, this is what you need to do and you need to communicate with your child in such and such a way and give them the language and the strategies to communicate more fully, more easily with you. And when your heart is kind of outside of your body in that way, and, and like a piece right, of you right. is standing there in the kitchen screaming at you, it's a lot harder to take that step back. So slowly and over time, it, it happens, but it's, it's not an easy quick fix at all. I think also in any family setting, what we're talking about is habits, right? They can instill these dances that we do with one another. Parents do on an adult level, children do on a sibling level, parents and children do together. And it's hard to break out of the dance because it's the status quo and it's what everybody's comfortable with. Even if it's awful, there's a, still a comfort. It's what I know versus what I don't know. So it really takes, I think, a lot of patience and persistence and forgiveness of themselves on the part of parents so that you say, all right, wow, mm -hmm. you know, I blew it yesterday. Um, and, and Emily, we, Greg and I have talked about what I call my 70-30 rule, which is you only have to get it right 70% of the time. There's a 30% margin for error. And, and I think it's so important to allow yourself to forgive yourself for that 30% because it's going to happen. You, it's not easy to break out of these patterns. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, you and know, I've, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Emily. I, I was going to say also that, you know, I, I often talk to parents that I work with about picking your battles, particularly with neurodivergent kids, it can feel like everything is hitting the fan all at once. So, you know, you want the kids to sit at the dinner table for, you know, with the rest of the family for dinner, and you want to them to use a fork, and you want them to use a napkin, and you want them... So in that situation, maybe pick, pick your battle. You know, choose, right. choose that you're just want them to sit at the table. It doesn't matter whether or not they're, you know, using their hands or using a fork. It doesn't matter if they're using their shirt to wipe their mouth. All you want to do in this moment is to have them be with the family. And that right, can, right, that's right. true in a, like kind of a microcosm of, of one experience in a day. And it can be true in the macrocosm of a full day. You know, you have had right. three blowups because you wouldn't, let the kid have ice cream and whatever, whatever. And you're working on this one particular behavior or you're about to work on this one behavior, particular behavior at the end of the night, like, you know, getting them to brush their teeth. You know, mm. it's okay to let the brushing the teeth go for a couple more days and right. and choose not to have that be the the be all and end all the hill to the die on the hill to right. die on exactly right. yeah and yeah and well that that yeah that seems important i um i mean our hour has gone really fast so i i, I do want to end with a couple of things the first thing is to say can you speak to a little bit about why the pan 
I mean, the pandemic has been challenging for everyone. Maybe why the pandemic is specifically challenging to neurodivergent kids. And also, are there some things that parents should keep in mind as we're coming out of the pandemic, hopefully? <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. I don't know how I feel currently. Please, can we come out of it? Uh, I'm just going to cry gently for a yes, second. Okay. Exactly. So, go ahead. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that it's, yeah, the pandemic was incredibly hard um, because lots of, I mean, everybody really, but particularly right. neurodivergent kids thrive on routine. Um, and we completely had to disregard routines for a year sure. and a half. Um, and that's because it's so comforting to them, I guess. Right? Yeah. Obviously, that's that's the thing. They get in, they have things that they do that just comfort them. Right. That that got thrown got thrown out the window. Right. Exactly. I mean, and we all have that, right? Like, I like to get up. Sure. And sure. I go get my yeah, coffee yeah. and I feed my right. son. So I have my little routine, which is you know very comforting to me, and I have the ability to say if my routine gets thrown off, geez, that really was miserable. I really didn't like that my routine was disrupted. When you're then dealing with a kid who doesn't have the language to to tell you that, it's that much harder because you can't they can't necessarily come and say, "Hey, my routine got disrupted for a year and a half and it really was awful and I need some extra space or I need some extra closeness or or whatever it is." So, that in and of itself was very challenging. And then we're adding adding on to that the fact that Lots of, I mean, if the kids were, you know, certain places in the country, like here in Texas, did have in-person schooling, but all the children were required to wear masks. And you're Uh, talking about a kid who has sensory processing uh, issues or, you know, both physically that a mask had to be on them, you know, the majority of the year. And then you've taken a teacher who no longer has you know, you're no longer giving that visual cue of speaking because you've put a mask mm, in front mm. of the teacher. So, yeah. you know, you're, you've, we've thrown a lot at these kids and we've thrown a lot at every child on sure. this planet, really this past year. Um, and they're resilient and they'll get through it. And it was really hard. So, you know, the pandemic was really, really challenging. And as we come out of it, a lot of the behaviors that they were used to practicing may have been completely disrupted, you know, social interactions mm. or right. going to school, you know, the transition from home to school or to bus to school or, or whatever that, that those transitions looked like. All of those were gone for a year. And so now right. we're coming back and expecting children to pop right back into, you know, oh, I can, I can make these transitions really easily. And I can interact with people again really easily. And this, these are all things that have been difficult for neurotypical kids, for neurotypical sure, adults. Sure. And right, we're asking right. yeah, children no, yeah, to do them and to not complain and to not react really in any way. And it's really, really hard. And so what I've told my parents, I mean, I've had lots of parents come to me and go, <gasps> my kid is so nervous about camp because, you know, they're going to interact with friends and they, they're worried that they're not going to make friends. And blah, blah. And I go, okay, that's okay. <laughs> it's okay to feel right. nervous. It's okay to feel yeah. worried. Yeah. We're, that right. is, our goal is to, to not to get rid of those, those feelings. Our, right. our role as, as adults in this situation, whether we're caregivers or parents or therapists is to hold the space for those feelings. And, and, give them permission to feel them because if they can accurately and easily express those feelings with us they're less likely to go out and smack you know a new friend right you right, know sure. because they're not sure how to interact or they want to to make a connection and so they hit a friend because that's what they're that's what they're actually wanting is to like make that friendship but they don't know how to do it and we haven't given them mm. the safe space to to feel those feelings at home and so that's kind of squirting out sideways as we say so really giving them the opportunity to to feel nervous to feel worried to feel anxious about all of these transitions coming back online and again accepting the fact that it's going to take time that you know that aren't we'd say that neurotypical julie has said this before i know that neurotypical kids take six to eight weeks to transition to something new 
So whether that be school or whether that be a new routine or whether that be a new family member or whatever, six to eight weeks of transition, we look at our neurodivergent kids. At least. At least. At least. True. Yes. (laughs) At least six to eight weeks of transition. Yeah. So if it's two months for neurotypical, you know, I imagine like we have to give even more flexibility for neurodivergent. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's okay. It's going to take time. So I kind of always do this to Julie as well, but I, I want to sort of, you know, wrap up by sort of encapsulating some of the things we've talked about. So if you have a parent that either is already with you or let's say a parent that's starting to experiencing some of these behaviors with their child, what are some of the, and you know, and they're trying to figure out what to do, you know, what are some of the main things that parents should keep in mind? I mean, the couple that already I'm remembering now is is to be patient that this is a longer process. But but what are the some of the things you would like parents to think about when they're dealing with the child that has these neurodivergent behaviors? I mean, I think that what we hope is for a parent or caregiver to be able to really take take a step back and look at the whole situation, mm-hmm. particularly what their child is communicating. And if you can kind of put the goggles of that, those words that that verbal that verbal behavior, the the, the actual act of speaking is only seven percent of communication. If you mm-hmm. can put those kind of goggles on, it's gonna open. I mean, it's gonna open your world because you're gonna be able to right. see all the things that are being communicated to you in every moment of every day with your child, and and that is gonna open up both teaching opportunities, but just relationship opportunities with your kid that you didn't even know existed. Now, Julie, I see you nodding a lot. Do you want to add in there? You're, you're, you're smiling and nodding. So she's, she's hitting your main, your main uh, favorite points, I think. Oh, 100%. I think she articulated it very well. I think that when we stop as as Emily said, when we stop focusing on the words and really focus on what the child is communicating, words or no words, that focus on what is this child trying to tell me or what is this teenager trying to tell me or what is this young adult trying to tell me? When we focus on that, we really open that door to communication. We open the ability for a relationship to grow and strengthen in that process. I think we just put too much importance on words. Right. Well, and success too, like getting it and figuring it out and stopping the behavior. What are some of the pragmatic things? I mean, you've already sort of touched on them, like a parent that's at home and is like, there's something off here. There's something that's not making sense to me. Like, what does a parent do and what can they expect to do? Do they go to their pediatrician? Is it, it, do you see kids that stay with you for years and years? Like, what, what, do, what does a parent do? Yeah, I mean, pediatrician to me is always the first stop. Um, okay. Partly right. because most of us in the autism community, anybody worth their salt, should not do anything prior to a medical release, right? Because a lot, again, we're talking about kids who may not have the ability to say, hey, my head hurts or my tummy hurts or mm. my arm hurts or whatever. So first, even even if there is a diagnosis, they should get checked out by their pediatrician. You're saying like they should rule out that it's not a medical thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, That's I, the first step. Yeah. I, I've actually had clients with pretty significant medical issues that have gone undiagnosed um, until I said, you know, I'm not comfortable acting like this as a behavior until you get a clearance from a pediatrician. Mm. And, and the pediatrician right, has come okay. back and gone oh my, you know, and something, something right, is cropped right. up. So that first and foremost, the, the, the trip to the pediatrician is always first in my book. And hopefully you have a relationship with your pediatrician that allows you, allows them to hear your concerns because mm. some pediatricians unfortunately kind of have a tendency to kind of brush brush through be dismissive yeah be be dismissive about first time parent concerns or oh you know right. you don't really have a good grasp on on what this child should should look like but hopefully they will will really kind of listen to you and and hear you out and 
ECI or early childhood intervention is free in most states. Um, I want to say all hmm. states. I don't know. I don't quote me on that because I don't know if it's all states and are always an option so that you all also have a paper trail started mm-hmm. fairly early. But that that's an easy step. And, and you know, worse comes to worse, right? Like they come back and say, oh, no, your kid is fine. And you know, right, and, and you right. come up with a different strategy, right? You go, you go to Julie and go, okay, so my kid is doesn't have. I mean, you know, and and all. I, I should I should flip back. Your kid is fine. All all children are fine, right? Like all children are amazing right, and right. wonderful. Sure, and, no, I understand, and, and all yeah, that. Of course, but you course. know, your kid is neurotypical. Really, is right. is what they would come back and say. You go, okay, great, um, cool. So let's figure out what the next set of strategies are to to help with this relationship that I'm building with my child. And, and if, if that's not the case, if, if they are neurodivergent, then you have a path forward and you have the ability to go and, and seek out services and have that early intervention started so that you can do the exact same thing, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and I want, I want to hit that again too because that was, that was something you said at the beginning that sounds really important that the earlier, the earlier you can get into these behaviors so they don't get cemented is sort of what you said, the, the, the better, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, most of the time, nobody's really going to diagnose particularly autism prior to 18 months. Um, there's not hmm. a good tool to diagnose it prior to 18 months. Right. Um, and right. most actually practitioners, it's, it's, it, that, that age has come down. It used to be three years old that, that was the, the standard. Then it came down to two. Um, and now it's somewhere between 18 months and two years old. So if you have a concern, you know, and there's a wide range for milestone. I think we really get stuck on milestones. And sometimes sure. kids are neurotypical and they just develop slower than their peers and that's okay because there is this wide range of milestone acquisition um, in terms of age but if something feels like it's not quite right your kid is does it you know has a t- gets tired really easily maybe mm. something's going on you know that w sit is neurotypical up to three years old but you don't want to see it all the time you want them you want to see right, them sitting right. in other situations or other sure. uh, configurations positions. yeah other positions right. Because that indicates that 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 core strength is there, um, and often that core strength mm. correlates. It's, there's no causal relationship, but it does sometimes correlate with a spectrum or or other neurodivergent diagnosis. Words are often what kids get referred to ECI for most often. I think you mean when they're not verbal, they're yeah. late on being verbal. Right. Right. Um, that being said autism spectrum disorder has a communication component that can mean Mm. hypo under you know what you would expect for their age in terms of verbal communication but you can actually have hyper verbal kids on the spectrum too so you know it's very fluid but if something feels off absolutely go to your pediatrician and say i i i I think this needs to be you know addressed. addressed I don't know. That was a pretty good wrap up, Julie. Is there anything that you would add to that? She get that was pretty good. That was pretty good. <laughs> no, yeah, spot. no. I she think I think it. she, I think she did really well. I just want to uh, ask if we want to give our listeners the information they might need if they would like to get a hold of Emily. Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah please. Yeah. So, uh, Emily, if you. Just can my email is real life ABA that's with one L so R E A L I F E A B A at Gmail. Uh, so my website is reallifeaba.com, which is R E A L I F E A B A.com. Great. And you know, Julie, we can also, we, we should put it in the description. Mm-hmm. When we put the description up, we'll put Emily's contact information there too. If if you need counseling yeah. or have a question about something, we should share it there. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Because Emily works, even though she is in Central Texas, you work by Zoom yeah. as well, right? Yeah, yeah. as we it's all do. Pretty now. fantastic that oh. that has opened up all sorts <laughs> of amazing horizons. And yeah, and we're we're looking to get kind of a hopefully a support group type situation going for. Um, parents of neurodivergent kids, because I think that that often gets shortchanged. Parents fe- feel oh, very boy. alone. I could um, when they yeah, when their course. kid gets diagnosed, and there's a lot of 
grief, the complicated emotions that come along with diagnoses sometimes for parents. Um, and so kind of supporting parents through that and hopefully giving them real concrete techniques to use to help their kid to, to help further that relationship with their child so all right well congratulations i julie maybe we should figure out some prize for her that she has now successfully yeah. been our first ever podcast <laughs> guest yeah we can send her a little trophy or something yes a trophy right? okay i'm gonna get a to work fabulous. on that right now so th emily <laughs> okay. thank you so much this was thank this you. was awesome we thank really appreciate it me. thank you for having me it was it was my pleasure Thanks for listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with your family and friends. And if you'd like to hear more about Julie's work, join one of her parenting groups, or see about individual counseling, please visit ParentingHorizons.com. Or you can email Julie at julie.ross at ParentingHorizons.com. See you next time.